All right. So we are continuing in First Samuel. So please turn there. I believe you'll find the text for today, which is chapter 21 on page 244 or somewhere there nearby. First Samuel 21. We won't read all of it, but I'll cover all of it. The place that we find ourselves in the story uh, with David reminds me of one of my favorite movies uh, back in the 90s. And uh, it came out uh, somewhere in mid-90s. It was a, a movie called The Fugitive. Uh, some of you may have seen it. It's Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. And uh, in the movie, uh, Harrison Ford is a physician who is uh, an innocent man. And he's charged with killing his, his wife, which he did not. He's innocent. He's on the run. He's a fugitive from the law. And uh, there's all these, you know... Uh, you know, uh, nail-biting scenes when he's trying to escape uh, the law. And uh, I can't help but think of that movie when I, we, we look at David's life here as he is on the run. And uh, that continues over several chapters. Of course, David's not running from law enforcement, per se. He's running from a jealous and fearful uh, foe who is the king of Israel, the first king, uh, who is uh, Saul, who has been rejected by God, who does not, because he rejected Uh, He's been rejected by God because he rejected God's law. Saul did. And he's chasing after in jealous envy of who David is, that anointed king that uh, has been chosen by God to be the next uh, king. He's now the king-elect David is. And uh, and as we see, Saul's anger and uh, and his murderous contempt only continues to escalate and, and grow. And David, each time... Uh, seems to, uh, you know, just just by the skin of his teeth, you know, he's uh, he's escaping and evading uh, danger and the attacks with the spear that uh, that King Saul throws at him multiple times. Now we find ourselves at a place where he's had this bitter departure, like we, we encountered last week from his dear friend Jonathan, um, who he had covenanted with, um, whom he loved and cared for, but they have to part ways. Jonathan is Saul's own son. And, uh, and then he has to also depart from, uh, from Michael, his own wife, who is King Saul's daughter. And he's, he's part of this. And, and nevertheless, he, he, he can't go back to his family now in Bethlehem. He's on the run and he can't go to his wife. Uh, he, he can't, you know, he, he, he's, he tried to go to the prophet uh, Samuel, but now he's going to make his way to another place, uh, which is, uh, is called Nob, which is only a couple of miles from uh, Jerusalem, but what he's doing there is he's he's seeking help from the priest because at this time the temple is not established. There, uh, the center of, of worship and God's presence is in the tabernacle, which would have been in Nob, and the, the Levitical priest who were you know God's representatives who were doing the the ministry there uh, were in the in the town of Nob, and so he makes his way there and he encounters the priest uh, Ahimelech, and he goes to Ahimelech and he says, listen, he has no yeah, all he has is the clothes on his back. Uh, he has no weapons. He has no food. He has no army. Uh, it's a little bit peculiar to Ahimelech that he has no entourage. After all, he is the, the you know, he's part of royalty. He is the commander of the, the king's armies, and he's there by himself. It's a little bit suspect. And, uh, and he doesn't know he's escaped. He doesn't know that he's trying to escape the king. And Ahimelech has some questions for him, and he evades some of those, and he's deceptive. He's hungry, he's desperate, and, uh, and he also asks for a weapon. And all that's there at the tabernacle amongst the, the priest is the, the sword that he himself, uh, David, had slaughtered um, Goliath with. And so you'll need to remember that name, Ahimelech. He's the, the priest, 
And then what does Ahimelech wear? Well, what all priests wear, which is a linen ephod, which is what he has on. And like I said, all David has now is the clothes on his back and this this sword. And he eats the consecrated bread that's there in the temple as part of his sustenance. And David decides of all places to go next on the run as a fugitive into enemy territory, the, the Philistines. And not only that, but he makes his way uh, to the city and the town, to the, the area of Gath. That that word sounds or that place sounds familiar. It should because that's we read a few chapters ago is where Goliath is from. And what is he carrying with him? Goliath's sword. I, you know, I you know, there's uh, <laughs> and then he has to spill over and now to what is a deceptive drama in front of these people. Uh, that he finds himself with these enemies, the Philistines. So let's stand uh, now in deference to God's word and pick up in verse 10. And David rose. He's leaving Nob, that town with Ahimelech, the priest. Now he rose and fled from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gates and let spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see, this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Did I do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Chapter 22, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men. David went from there to Mizpah and Moab, and he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go to the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered. And the men who were with him, Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the Tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in hand, and all his servants were standing about him. Verse 7, And Saul said to his servants who stood among about him, Here now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give, you, give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all you have, and that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie and wait as this as is this day. Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provision and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then this king summoned Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, sons of Ahitub. And he said, Here I am, my lord. And he said to them, Why have you conspired against me, you and the, the son of Jesse? 
and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let the king, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. For your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down their priest and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David and Saul that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day that Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is God's word. You may be seated. Father, we would ask uh, that you would be uh, pleased mercifully right now to guide us and that you would even control us by your spirit, your Holy Spirit, that great counselor, so that we would fulfill your purposes and we would bear fruit in heart and mind for Christ's sake, his praise. And in his name we ask it. Amen. Sometime, uh, I think it was last year or the year before, our family started watching a reality TV show on the History Channel. I think I've referenced this before. It's a, it's a, it's a survival show called Alone. Some of you maybe have uh, watched Alone. There's several seasons now out. The basic premise is this. A last man standing or woman standing gets a million dollars. Oh, but by the way, you can only take one backpack with stuff. And, uh, and then we're just going to drop you in random places in the wilderness. And as it encroaches upon winter, you have to survive with just those things. And you have a camera with you and the, the people, the participants uh, record themselves. They have no company. Uh, they, they have to you know, survive on their wits and maybe some, you know, some, some weaponry and tools. And they build shelters and they live uh, amongst the woods. Uh, I'm always voting for, by the way. Uh, you know, this is not rocket science, but you know, some of the people end up you know, tapping out because they're just you know, so emotionally distraught, as you, know, you would expect. You know, months in, all by yourself, going out of your mind, or they're 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 you know they're injured, or maybe they do a medical check and find out that you're you know falling into malnutrition, and you you know you you could be in a really bad place medically, or you know you know you just you know whatever happens, you get too hungry and you tap out, and uh, and I'm always pulling for the person who has uh, they always do you know the background story, uh, whoever has like the sweetest nicest family. Um, that, that's not going to be the one who survives. It's the person who's like lonely, the least amount of friends, and the greatest amount of fat on their body. That's who's going to win. You know, I'm, I'm just I'm inclined to pull for that person. I'm, 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 that's my, I'm betting on that person to make it. 
You get the premise, right? But imagine if you would, because some of them, they built some pretty impressive little uh, shelters. Some of them are like a home with a stove and, you know, all out of they're, they're, with their, their, their hands, tools and, you know, leaves and branches and, and, uh, and wood. It's impressive. But imagine if you would, if you were to come upon one of those people at the end and say, you're the last one standing. You got a million dollars. And they looked at the person and said, Nah, I'm just going to say, I've kind of, you know, I've come to terms with all this. I'm happy. I'm content. You know, just fly on back home. I'm good. No, that would be ridiculous. I mean, some of them do have like this sentimental moment where they leave their, their, you know, this special abode that they've built only to imagine it being, you know, blown over next season. But you you imagine this, right? There there would be no way. People are, are, are desperate at times, eager to be home. And we get that naturally. That has some parallel to what we're going to uh, encounter with David here. And I guess I'm saying that because I just want to highlight in those parallels what I want us to grasp this morning. And I'll just go ahead and say it right out of the gate. I would like for us in our prayer life and in, in, in our posture to stop praying this prayer. Lord, give us a good day. We do need to continue. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. The Lord patterned that. We say it each Lord's Day because it's a good pattern of prayer. But Lord, give us a good day. It's as if uh, life is not supposed to be hard. And indeed it is. And this world is not our ultimate home. And if you're united to Christ today, I want to say to you, those of you followers of Christ, united to him by faith, suffering is not the enemy. And even on the very, very best of days, all of that pales in comparison to our home and glory in the presence of our great King and Savior Jesus. Nothing. When we see him face to face, this is this is the greatest place is not that home or that season of nostalgia in the past or that place here or, or that place that's you know just around the corner that we envision that's just altogether a wonderful day and happy place. It's not even up there in the clouds. It's in the future when he returns to establish new heavens, new earth. So we're either at home in this fallen world or... And in bondage to that, by the way, we are either in bondage to sin and at home in the world, or we are free and forgiven in Christ and our home is in glory. That's not yet. And if your home is not here, or the things that we're chasing after to make home here, then you're in the wilderness. Each of us is in the wilderness. I'll come back to this. Here are my three headings. The things that, that, I, that I'm kind of pulling out for us to observe. One is, I list them in the order, the desperation of a fugitive king. The next is the wickedness we see of a rejected king. And then lastly is the refuge of a future king. David is the fugitive king. David is on the run at times uh, as we've touched upon in, in, in the previous week, if you look at chapter 20, verse 3, he says to Jonathan, there is but one step between me and death. That's his perspective, right? He feels like he is all, 
always walking right on the edge, on the precipice. As one commentator, Del Ralph Davis says, David right now is at wit's end and life's edge. No doubt about it. But that's only if we look at it from David's perspective, right? If we look at it from God's perspective, he's been anointed. He has purposes. David has promised to have a kingdom that continues. He is safe and sound in God's economy. But he doesn't feel that way. He is, he's anxious. He's fearful. He's desperate at times. And perhaps that's what motivates him when he encounters in Nob, Ahimelech, the priest. He, he deceives him. I mean, we, we don't exactly know. Maybe he's covering himself. Maybe he's covering for Ahimelech to not implicate him. Or maybe it's a little bit of both. We don't know. But we know that he's definitely deceptive when he goes in and he's foaming at the mouth, right, in Gath. Did you catch that? He's, you know, he's, he's acting insane. It's part of a tactic, a deceptive tactic, so that he can cover himself. Because he knows that even the pagans believe it's a bad thing. It's bad luck to, at that time, they believed in the ancient Near East to kill someone who was insane. David is hungry. David is alone. David is desperate. David's struggling right now with faith. What, what, is, what is David... You know, if you go back to alone, you know exactly what they're, they're coached to do this on the reality TV show. You break out the camera. You talk about your feelings. You talk about that, you know, that bear you encounter earlier today. You, you, you know what's going on, right? You, they have this. It's all documented. What's David feeling? What's David experiencing? Well, we don't have to guess. It's interesting that there are several Psalms that are written right during this time. And it's recorded as such. Let me give you one of them. Psalm 142. In fact, if you want to turn over there, it's always easy to get to a psalm. Just crack right down the middle. The Bible, not you. Uh, Psalm 142. This is part of a prayer that David forged and wrote. And it says at the very heading, it describes... A masculine of David when he was in the cave. So this is when he was in chapter 22 um, in the cave. This is what he says. Look at it with me. When my voice I cry out with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. And with my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint, my complaint before the Lord. I tell him my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way in the path where I walk there. Have hidden, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is no one. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. That's how he feels. That's his that's the inner stirrings that he is contemplating amidst his trouble. He is he's desperate. He is alone. David is struggling in the wilderness, literally and metaphorically. What do I mean? Well, I mean, he's come out of obscurity. He's been raised uh, up and anointed to a, a celebrity. And, uh, and, and, and now Saul wants his life, his heart. David's is aligned with God. And yes, there's this promised sweet day when he will be enthroned as the king. But he's not inaugurated yet. And he is not ruling and reigning as king. Now he's on the run and he has this fierce enemy, enemies. The other servants of Saul. He's in the wilderness. And frankly, it's a pattern. If you look at scripture in multiple places, 
we see that this is a pattern for the people of God. You think about it, right? What about Israel? Israel is in slavery and bondage in, in Egypt, and they are brought out, what? To a promised land. But what's in between that? 40 years in the wilderness. Where's David? He's in the wilderness. Christians, this is all of us as well. We are in the wilderness. Suffering and waiting are not merely a curse. Frankly, suffering and waiting is part of a sign that we are united to Christ. That we are his sons and daughters. And our true joy and our true hope is not here in fleeting temporal things that rust and fade and spoil. And neither the comforts. And there are, there are many. Mercifully, God has given us those. Let's move on. Because what we see also is a wickedness of a rejected king. The desperation of David. Now we see the wickedness of Saul. King Saul reaches Nob. And what do we read here except the profound tragedy? This, 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 this slaughtering. It is. It, it's, it's shocking. I, I, don't, I mean, was that disturbing to read? As it should be, but it actually is not a surprise. And I'll explain why in a moment. Saul operates. He's been operating. He continues to operate. After the Lord's Spirit has left him, he's rejected God. Saul continues to operate as king out of fear, jealous, jealousy, and unbelief. And, and we talk about, Scripture talks about the deceitfulness of sin. It blinds us. You, can't, you don't perceive, you don't think clearly, you don't understand rightly. And that, dis, that destructive nature of the deceitfulness of sin is looming pretty large here because he doesn't even fear God enough. The jealousy has even turned where he would be willing to kill his own son, Jonathan, like we read last week with the spear. Now he's in this city. He doesn't even have enough of the fear of the Lord to, to spare the lives in, in his anger of these priests. The priest, he describes them, the priests of the Lord. Servants, go take them out. What do the servants do? Well, they have a moment of conscience. I don't think this is such a good idea. I mean, they look at each other like, this is not good. And then there's this man, this wealthy herdsman, who is the chief shepherd over the king's flock. His name is Doag the Edomite. What does that mean? Well, it means that he's a half-bred. He's part of the Edomites who are not part of the covenant community. He is a Gentile. He holds up place of prominence. He's wealthy, and he's obviously ruthless. He was there the day that Ahimelech helped out David, and he, he, he's part of you know telling this you know he's 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 telling him he's guilty. He helped David, and I'm willing to go ahead and slaughter all these people if your servants aren't. And then he goes and kills everything and everyone. That's where we, we read all even the livestock, verse 19 in chapter 22. This is disturbing because it shows us how blind and deceived Saul has become. He's, like I said, willing to kill his own flesh and blood. Now he's willing to kill an entire town. But God actually predicted this. It was actually a fulfillment of a curse because we go back. If you were to read in chapter two, if you were to read. There's Eli at the beginning. He's the one who anointed Samuel at the beginning of, of, our, of our study of Samuel. Uh, there's a time when Eli, um, who has two sons who are wicked, 
what happens with these sons? Well, they, they, they are, you know, they, they are wandering away from the ways of God. And what happens um, is that Phineas and, and uh, Hophni, and he says, listen, there will be a curse upon you. And in fact, he says in 1 Samuel 2, verse 33, the only one of you whom I shall, that shall not be cut off from my altar will be spared and weep his eyes out to grieve his heart and that all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword. Eli, a priest, here the, the priests of Nob are all wiped out. That doesn't remove the guilt from Doag or Saul, but it's what God knew was coming. And then the fulfillment of it, even down to the very fine detail of one man standing. Who is that one man? Abathar, the only one left to grieve. And he's the one who comes to David at the last verse. How does David feel about all of this? Well, here's another opportunity. We don't have to, 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 to wonder. We don't have to be, you know, there's no question mark. David here says in Psalm 52 how he feels. This is another one that's recorded to have been written at the same time. Psalm 52, this is what David writes. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. He's speaking of Doeg. As king, Saul is using this, this, this Gentile herdsman to wipe out the priest. And here, in many ways, David functions, we know... As one who points to Christ and Saul at this particular moment points very much to an antichrist. The spirit of antichrist. But God will bring justice upon the wicked someday for the deeds like this. I don't know about you, but you read of this slaughtering and it, you know, you can't help but think about things like genocide. Uh, we've recently befriended a, a woman. She's uh, about our age. Chris and I have, and she is from Rwanda. And uh, we were actually talking with her yesterday, and uh, she was describing some of her life. She was in Rwanda at about the age of 12. Her family fled, and uh, and they they were um, they were able to make their way to Swaziland. And uh, she watched all kinds of horrific things of of friends of hers being uh, slaughtered. And of course, the Rwandan genocide is a, is a tragedy that killed. Uh, hundreds of thousands, and they they were able to make it to Swaziland, and that's where she's lived up until seven years ago when she moved to the United States and became a uh, U.S. citizen, and she's she's married to an American now. But she describes living of all places, she's living in Swaziland in a refugee camp for you know over 12 years, right? Uh, and her her dad was actually a pastor uh, there, and 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 she's experienced healing and hope and there's beautiful things that are part of her story she's now like i said an american citizen but the greatest thing about her is she's a child of god she's a woman of faith she knows full well that she even on the best of days and living in america is pretty sweet in comparison she knows that she's still in the wilderness this is not her home she even confessed to us Everything looks like a paradise compared to a refugee settlement in Swaziland that she, in her first years of moving here, really struggled with a great deal of confusion. 
And anger when she came across Americans who kept complaining and whining, dissatisfied about where they live and what they have to experience sitting here praying, give us a good day, as if they didn't already have it. Think about that. Let's move on. The refuge of a future king. David does find himself in this journey in the wilderness, a place of refuge in the cave of Adullam. Which, by the way, is, you know, is an actual spot that has this strategic and superior view so that you can see incoming, oncoming uh, enemies and threats. But what does not seem strategic, if David is, is vulnerable and alone, um, what doesn't seem strategic is the group of people that God brings to him. I don't know if you caught that, but at the beginning of the, of the chapter in 22, it's like the people who are outcast, marginalized, the people who are in debt... Who are these people? The people who are bitter in soul, some of his family, about 400 people come. Gee, God, why couldn't you send, you know, a little bit of a sturdier force, a little more substantial, maybe some people of a, of a different, you know, reputation and, you know, skill set. But David, his confidence and his hope is now being restored. And how do we know this? Again, we, we go to the Psalms that he wrote during this time. Because that one that I read for you in Psalm 142, the good news is, is he doesn't just stop there and say, I don't have any refuge. No one is around me. No one cares for me. I'm in distress and trouble. He goes on to say, no. Verse 5 of Psalm 142, I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge. One verse earlier he said, I have no refuge. And then now he's saying, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. David's faith is restored because he knows how God operates toward the weak, toward the humble. And and by the way, that's that's the way he's always been down through the ages. I mean, even did you did you not hear that in our New Testament reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1? How does God operate? Where's the wise man? Where's the strong man? Where's, where's you know, the, the, those who are esteemed in the culture and in the world as, as great? Well, this is what it says. I'll just remind you. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were, were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were noble at birth. But God chose what is foolish. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Let me ask you, you you don't have to live in a Rwandan Refugee settlement in Africa. We know at times what it feels like to be weak. We know what it's like to feel as if things are crumbling and we find moments of despair. And what do we do? Do we grasp for temporal things or do we grasp for eternal things? You may not experience this every day. But the longer you live, we do, students, encounter desperation. 
And here's just some of the ways that it sounds and, and feels. We feel cornered. We, we feel guilt and shame when we are confronted maybe. And what do we do? We're desperate and we lie. And we like David here. And then that leads to more lies. We experience things like loneliness and sorrow. And in desperation, when it sets in, we try to escape and find refuge in foolish things and fleeting things. We feel financially de- desperate at times. And then we, then we go and, and we, we overwork. And we find ourselves in debt. In our temptation sometimes, we feel desperate that we must give in instead of pressing in to find refuge in God and his promises. We have anxious thoughts about our future and and we take refuge in that fleeting notion that we are in control and we grasp for it. Friends, we are in the wilderness. It's the pattern now for the people of God. And whatever... Refuge, whatever you could construct right now for the sake of your comfort is temporary and flimsy at best. We are pilgrims. If you lost me, here's where I'm at. We are pilgrims, my friends, in the wilderness. And the sooner we can come to grips with that, frankly, the better our lives will be and our outlook because we won't be striving constantly, whether it's financially striving restlessly trying to create some type of comfortable place financially relationally physically even politically for things to be aligned like we want them to be where do you find refuge and this again is where in God's story we we see Christ in the in the life of David David here is pointing us to Christ, who is our rock and our refuge. David knows sorrow. David knows fear. David knows isolation and hunger and betrayal. And so does our Savior. That greater son of David, our king, our future King Jesus. In addition to all the people who were at the start of chapter 22, he gathered his end the the weak and the marginalized and the people who are struggling. We see at the very end, I love this, this grieving man, Abiathar, comes to him, this son of Abimelech. And what does he say to him? Stay with me. It's the last verse there. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life will see, seeks yours. With me you shall be in safe keeping. David didn't have the faith to say that all along. He can right now. And he, he's able to deliver on that because he's building around God's promises. This is our Lord Jesus. Come to me and you will find rest, refuge, rest for your souls, peace for your hearts, forgiveness for your sins. Only Jesus can say that. Jesus was in the wilderness. We know this. The Gospels record this for 40 days, enduring all forms of hunger and temptation, threats from the enemy. But unlike David and unlike Israel in the wilderness, 
He is faithful. He does not falter, even to the very end. And it was necessary. It was necessary to make it all the way to the end so that he could serve as a perfect sacrifice, a substitute on the cross for you and for me and our sins. I'll say it again. If you, my friends, forsake sin, repent and turn and surrender by faith to Christ, which is something, by the way, you could do this very day. And I would I would love an opportunity to explain what that means and how you can trust Christ. Then you have hope. You will have hope that even in the moments of weakness and despair and restlessness, God gathers and favors people like this. And God will not abandon you. He did not abandon David. He will not abandon you. This is what David says. I'll I'll leave this with you in closing. This is yet another psalm, Psalm 56, that he wrote during this season of turmoil. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me in God whose word I praise in the Lord whose word I praise in God. I trust I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's ask God's help. Father, we ask for your help to understand these things and moreover to apply them. Lord, thank you, God, for the spirit that you send as our counselor to to show us not only our weakness and vulnerability, but our foolishness and our strivings that are not they're not faith filled. They're, they're, they're displeasing to you in our unbelief. Lord, thank you for your son who covers that guilt and shame, who pardons. Thank you, God, for loving us, Father, for loving us with a steadfast love and then adopting us into your family forever. Lord, please give us humility and faith to find our refuge in you. Lord, thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for hearing us. Forgive us our sins, the ways that we overlook your handiwork and we don't wait on you. We are at times very impatient. Lord, thank you for the safe arrival of yet another covenant child, Amelia Johnson. Thank you for the blessing that our church has in so many children. Lord, I do pray for unborn children in our church family. You would watch over them and their mothers. Lord, I pray for people who are struggling with the lingering pain of infertility and miscarriage. Lord, I pray for those who grieve loss. Those who grieve because of Lost opportunities and lingering sickness and wayward children and estranged and broken relationships. Have mercy, Lord. God, you know the places that we are tempted to flee and find refuge. You know how we've busied ourselves at times. Acting and functioning and investing as if this is our final home. Lord, forgive us. Guide us, please, to see and perceive and cherish and treasure the beauty of the weight of glory, our inheritance.
long for it. Lord, please come back. Make all things right. Make all things new. Let justice and mercy rain down. Hear us even now as we pray.